1: and welcome to a not so random trek review Uh, this is the podcast where we analyze discuss and review a randomly selected star trek movie my name is matt and this week we are co-hosting for our very special movie edition of rtr and oh my goodness andrew is stealing the enterprise what in the world andrew you managed to outrun the excelsior how are you feeling now
0: Well, I mean, lucky for me, the uh, Enterprise just happened to have been switched over to basically all automated. So me and a couple of friends are able to basically run the entire thing. We are off to the Genesis planet.
1: Very good. And uh, I trust that uh, someone sabotaged the engines uh, of the Excelsior (laughs) to allow you to escape. So that's very clever thinking. So this is our very special uh, year-end two-part podcast where we review a movie. Andrew, tell us what we're going to be reviewing this week and two weeks from now for those who d- didn't quite catch the last podcast.
0: Yeah, well we uh, randomly selected Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. Uh, that is from June the 1st, 1984, which is actually before I was even born. It stars William Shatner, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takei, Walter Koenig, Michelle Nichols, uh, Merritt Butrick and Christopher Lloyd. It was directed, of course, by Leonard Nimoy, who is probably best known from Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, um, as well as Star Trek IV, uh, The Voyage Home. Uh, I kind of did a little bit of digging on Leonard Nimoy and his directorial life after Star Trek, and the only ones that I could really come up with that I knew were Three Men and a Baby. Do you remember that one, Matt, with uh, Tom Selleck? No. No? Okay, well... There was a comedy, Three Men and a Baby.
1: (laughs) A comedy, now that is interesting.
0: I think that, you know what, I mean, it's kind of all of the classic tropes that you would expect. Like, men don't know anything about raising a baby, wah, wah, wah. And there's three of them, and it's crazy, essentially, the plot of the movie. But uh, he also directed a movie called The Good Mother, uh, Funny About Love, and his last directorial credit was a movie called Holy Matrimony. This one was written by Harv Bennett, and, uh, of course, he is best known for Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, uh, and also had a co-writing credit for Star Trek's Four and Five. So this is one that I'm excited to dig into myself. I would say that it's one that I don't watch a whole lot, but uh, I'm excited to watch it here with you, Matt. And, of course, because we are watching... Uh, the movies. We've got our, uh, you know, our three-piece suits. It's Black Tie Affair. And uh, Matt, why don't you give us a little synopsis for those of us that uh, haven't seen it in a long time, or maybe they've never seen it.
1: Yeah, quick synopsis for the first half, which is what we're going to cover here on RTR this time around. A battered USS Enterprise is en route to the earth for refit and repairs. The crew is noticeably shaken by the death of Spock, especially Kirk. Meanwhile, Klingon Captain Krug obtains classified data about the Genesis project, hoping to turn it into a weapon for the Klingon Empire. The Enterprise reaches Earth and the crew learn that the ship is to be decommissioned and the Genesis has become an intergalactic controversy. Kirk is unable to get permission to lead a rescue mission to look for Spock on the Genesis planet. Ambassador Sarek then informs Kirk that Spock's Katra is still living, and they determine that McCoy is holding Spock's consciousness and his memories. The science vessel Grissom arrives at the Genesis planet to conduct a scientific study of the newly formed planet. They are shocked to find a life form near Spock's torpedo casing and eventually discover that Spock is alive, but as a young boy. Kirk again pleads with Starfleet to allow him to go to Genesis, but again he's turned down. His shipmates help him break Dr. McCoy out of a security complex and steal the Enterprise. Kirk tells him to stay behind, but Scotty, Sulu, and Chekhov insist on going with him and McCoy. Krug arrives at the Genesis planet and destroys the USS Grissom, stranding Savik, David, and young Spock on the planet. As the first half ends, we learn that David bent some rules in order to get Genesis to work, which could lead to some terrifying results.
0: As we do, we typically like to kind of just take an overall one sentence impression of the movie or I will go first so that you can kind of have uh, a second to, to think about it uh, For me if I had to if I had to arrange this as a one second or one sentence expression it would be breaks the odd number trek rule semicolon, <laughs> Kramer's favorite movie, <laughs> that would be probably my, my, my kind of the two biggest things that come from it. One of the things that I, I definitely always remember, which I think I mentioned last time, is that this is the uh, one that they always talked about on Seinfeld, or at least that one episode where Kramer insists that uh, Search for Spock is the better of the two pictures uh, between uh, Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock. What is your one sentence overall impression
1: of the movie? I like that you threw semicolons in there. That's very clever. <laughs> yeah. This is a movie that I think does what it wants to do very well and I think is a lot better than it gets credit for. That's what that's what my one sentence would be.
0: We were gonna we're gonna dissect this like it is a, uh, you know, like a, a fine Klingon feast. But uh, do you have any kind of uh, first watch experiences? I'm assuming just based on your age that you did not see this in theaters. Uh, but have you ever gone back to like a re-release and watched it? Or do you have any memories of seeing it for a first time?
1: I haven't seen it in the theater. That's one of the few original series movies that I haven't seen in the theater. I do have a very distinct memory. So City TV, which is a a still existing television network in, in Toronto. When I was first getting into Star Trek, they showed Wrath of Khan a fair bit. And the one time that they showed Wrath of Khan, they actually showed Wrath of Khan in this movie back to back. And I was so excited and I taped them both. And I probably wore that tape out. I've probably seen... Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock back to back on that same VHS tape, probably ten times, uh, from the from the age of I don't know twelve to nineteen. So I've seen I've, I've seen this movie quite a lot, and um, I have very fond memories. I remember I, I had to stay up till like midnight, and I thought I was being such a badass for staying up till midnight to watch <laughs> two Star Trek movies back to back. And I just there were so many of those. Cold winter, Canadian winter days where it's Saturday, my homework is already done, and it's cold, and I don't want to go outside. I'm just going to sit back and watch these two movies back to back because I've got them on tape. Um, So I've seen it a lot when I was younger. I haven't seen it as much sort of into my 20s and, and and. onward it is still kind of fresh in a way but i mean i've seen it so many times when i was young that um i i know the movie very well you
0: can like recite it line by line almost
1: Uh, i don't know if i'd go that far but maybe like scene by scene
0: okay now the real question is is when you recorded that did you actually hit the little pause button so that you didn't have to have the commercials or did you watch this all those times while having to fast forward through the
1: commercials Here's an interesting thing. So I, I did take the commercials out, but I wasn't the greatest at doing it. So sometimes little, like, you know, half a second or a second was cut off. And then I also think when they put it on TV, they chopped certain parts out because I was watching it on the DVD this time. And there were parts that seemed very unfamiliar to me, which which I think was because they weren't included on the TV broadcast. Yeah.
0: Yeah, now I think that this movie runs at about an hour 45, and so I wouldn't be surprised if they trimmed it to get it down to like an hour and a half, just because then with your commercials, you're probably sitting at like two hours maybe, and then you can another episode of Full House or something in on your schedule. So they probably did trim it down a little bit, which is very, very common at the time. I think that the first time that I saw this movie might have been with you. I was always a big Star Trek fan, but it wasn't like I was a super, super fan growing up. And uh, a lot of the times, the movies that were always on cable were Wrath of Khan, The Voyage Home, and then the odd time you might see, like, Undiscovered Country or Final Frontier, Uh, but really Search for Spock and the Motion Picture were probably two that I Maybe never saw or at least was never that conscious of seeing it Matt and I grew up in the same hometown And then uh, we went off to college or what have you and then it just so happened that I went to uh, Like a graduate school like a teacher's college program in the same city that Matt lived in same school same school even, yeah. Now, Matt, you might have to kind of help me on the rest of this story because for some reason, we got onto it and we decided to watch all the Star Trek movies. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. Yeah, and Matt lived in this little apartment, <laughs> if I remember correctly, and he has had this little one little tiny room, and I almost want to think that you had them on like a, like a really tiny little TV, like you had them on DVD or something. And uh, anyway, we cruised through them, and I think that that might have been the first time I actually watched Search for Spock in a conscious way, sitting down and watching it. And my memory was, because it was like a few hours north of Toronto, like probably two, three hours north of Toronto in this little city, and it was like freezing cold, like winter blustery, and we were kind of like... Sequestered away. I think maybe we must have done it over a few days because I don't think we would have been able to watch them all. But, uh, yeah, we just like crushed through all the Star Trek movies. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, I would have. That would have been when I was living. I was like renting a room, and I think I had about a like a nineteen inch TV. I think.
0: Yeah, and you had like one chair, so like one person had to sit on like a bed, and one <laughs> person sat in a chair. Like you could tell we were poor at the time.
1: Well, we were students.
0: It wasn't like four K. Uh, ultra remastered on a, on a big plasma screen or anything. It was, yeah, like two nerds essentially, right? Just kind of watching Star Trek. And I think that was probably, that's my earliest memory anyway of watching it. And I've never seen it in theaters either. Um, I actually haven't seen a lot of the Star Trek movies in theaters, sadly. But I'm really hoping that that one will come around. Listen to some of these movies that came out in the month prior as well as the month of the the third Star Trek movie. You've got Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. You've got uh, Drew Barrymore in Firestarter. The Natural. Matt and I love that in baseball. Sixteen Candles. Toxic Avenger. Conan the Destroyer. The Karate Kid, like the original Karate Kid. Rhinestone with... Uh, <laughs> John Travolta, Ghostbusters, and Gremlins, which I'm surprised because Gremlins is a, a Christmas movie, but nonetheless, those are some big name classic movies. So, Matt, what do you think of that when you hear that? Were you as surprised as me? Like, are you kind of a little bit blown away by the the quality of May and June of 1984?
1: Knowing that it's 84, it makes me feel pretty old. Um, but those are <laughs> some pretty, you know, those are some pretty impressive movies. That I would say, a number of those have stood the test of time
0: they're still making indiana jones movies the karate kid is like (laughs) one of the most popular television series that's on tv now ghostbusters is another one coming out this year conan i don't know i feel like there's not as much stuff coming out but i do know that they just released a board game that was really really popular um last year or the year before so i mean like these are still movies that are still kicking around
1: yep that's that's very true
0: Let's jump into it. And of course, this is going to be spoiler filled or as spoiler filled as it can possibly be when you're talking about a movie that's as old as this movie is. I mean, the very first thing is that this was a movie that was written backwards. They knew that this is the biggest character. Spock is the most important, the biggest selling, the the marquee character. Sorry, Shatner. Sorry, Kirk. But they knew that they wanted to get him back. And so they basically started with Okay, at the end of the movie, we want him back. And then they wrote the whole thing backwards to basically get to uh, the story. And Harve Bennett supposedly wrote this around the same time as Rathacon was uh, kind of finding all of its success. And it was the easiest thing he ever wrote. And he did it like in a couple of days. And it was just all sunshine and rainbows now i don't know if that's true but apparently that is is the story so does that make sense did you ever really think that they were going to leave spock dead or what
1: uh well logic like i'm going to speak about logic here logically it makes perfect sense why would you kill off spock now i mean when i was 12 years old and he died at the end of wrath of i had no idea like and i was you know a young kid So, but I think looking at it now, like, yeah, of course you're going to bring Spock back. He's arguably the most iconic character even now in Star Trek. So, of course you got to bring him back.
0: I don't think there's an argument at all. Honestly, as far as I'm concerned, Spock has gone from probably going neck and neck with Kirk during this era. He has blown by. He is now like the poster child if you look at it star trek discovery season two all about spock they've got strange new worlds coming out it's going to be all about spock every single novel in the discovery line and the picard line spock pops up or is mentioned i mean was there ever a scenario where they didn't bring him back and i mean if they hadn't would it have basically sealed his legacy even more
1: i think the only way they don't bring him back is if leonard nimoy doesn't want to do it and the fact that he's directing and still involved i think it shows that he didn't it wasn't that he wanted to leave or that he was didn't want to be a part of it anymore it was that it it was a shocking end to the movie and uh that you know they they gotta undo it i guess is sort of the whole the whole point here because they they need to have their they're you know, they're one of their main guys, if they're going to keep going, and they I think that that was in the plans at the time to continue making these movies.
0: I think that one of the hardest things about this is just the fact that you know you kind of have to have a villain. You know, a story for a television series you could probably get away with no real villain, just a story about getting him back, but uh, you need a villain because it's a movie and you need somebody to fight and to kind of work off of, and so we get the Klingons here, but originally it was going to feature Romulans. And not only was it going to feature Romulans, it was going to feature Romulans in a stolen Klingon bird of prey, uh, kind of like in a balance of terror-esque kind of feel and tension we don't get romulans in the movies until the next generation era really so do you think it was worth the wait do you wish maybe that they had been here because this is the first of kind of a lot of klingons really in the original series movies
1: i think it would have made for a different movie or at least it would have or or it would have made for very different romulans uh because i felt like the klingons in this were very Klingon. Krug was a very, like, ham-fisted, tyrannical uh, captain, which we see in a few instances. And I'm not so sure that it it works the same way if, you had, if they had portrayed the Romulans in the same way. I mean, I think they would have either had to maybe change the mannerisms a bit, or, or we would have had much different Romulans than we have seen before.
0: And I guess the other thing that's hard for us to really think about is that we wouldn't have gotten next-generation Romulans because the next-generation Romulans didn't exist yet. So we probably would have gotten something closer to the original series, but then because they redid the Klingons, they probably would have redone the Romulans as well. And so that's kind of an interesting what-if scenario, right? What would they have done with the Romulans? How would they have changed them? It is something that I think bears pondering anyway
1: oh yeah definitely would have could have changed a whole lot of things
0: anyway with uh, Leonard Nimoy directing this one he also helped with the story a lot but went uncredited and the space between William Shatner's name and DeForest Kelly's name was left intentionally long kind of like a in memoriam perhaps or just as like a a little subconscious thing for you to kind of recognize that that's where uh Nimoy would be left out, and they purposely uh kind of left his big reveal and his big coming back at the end a secret, even going so far as to uh use like another person's name in all of like the the documents and everything. I think it was like Vulcan written backwards or something,
1: yes, it was. You know,
0: it's so hard now because you've got the internet and you've got the, the rag sheets and uh, Entertainment Weekly and all these different things. I mean, do, did anybody really think that he wasn't... I mean, the movie's called Search for Spock. Did they need to go this extra mile and, and keep it a big secret and everything? Or was it just one of those things where, you know, back in these days, big reveals, big secrets, more important or at least better kept? Because nowadays, I feel like there's no secrets. They usually give it away in the trailer.
1: Well, or they poorly choose an actor's, like, pseudonym and allow people to figure it out. (coughs) Discovery, season one.
0: Yes, that was probably (laughs) the worst of the offenders, really.
1: Sorry, did I say that out loud? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think back in those days, it was actually theoretically possible that you could keep those kinds of secrets. So I think... I think they they the producers would have thought, yeah, let's try to let's put in the effort to try to make this keep this a secret. I don't know. Today you could, there's no way you could do it though.
0: It would leak in today's society. It would just leak, and you would. Everybody would know it or everybody would predict it and then an actor would slip up and and that would be kind of the way that that it goes.
1: Well, if you think about like how many people, I I imagine that there's a lot more people involved in a lot of film productions now, whether it be the fact that you have more actors or more production crew or camera crews and all that because the technology is so different. I feel like it just is not possible, you know. You might have to keep 50 people or 60 people from leaking it. Now it's probably 100. You know, how do you keep 100 feet people from, you know, spilling the biggest bowl of beans in the franchise, you know?
0: And that's just it, right? I mean, a lot of times they'll have non-disclosure agreements where they could sue them and stuff, but it might be so profitable to sell it to a magazine or something that they maybe are, it's worth the risk kind of idea. I mean, the other big surprise here is the, the death of the enterprise. Um, And apparently it was never in the original script, but they added it because Nimoy, as well as Harv Bennett thought that they needed to have a big life and death decision. It just wasn't going to be enough with just David, I guess. So, the death of the Enterprise, and I mean, I want to save that for when it happens, but this is kind of like the M. Night Shyamalan thing, right? Does every, does every Star Trek movie from here on out need to have a big, sad death in it? Probably not. And so, I mean, I'm glad that it's kind of just kept... To a couple and it didn't become a thing where they had to continuously try to do it right
1: it's hard to imagine how the movie goes if they don't blow up the enterprise
0: yeah kind of eh? like it it's it's such an important big part of the movie that it seems like it would and it also would screw up the next movie too right because the next movie they don't have the ship so
1: yeah exactly i mean it makes you wonder like how the next movie might have gone do they go back in time in this like pilfered ship that they that they still have? Uh, yeah, it, it makes you kind of wonder like how it, things might have been different. And then do, and then do they like completely overhaul the ship for Star Trek Five, and they still have the original ship even though it was you know set to be uh, mothballed? And I don't know, it's interesting. I, I it's kind of it's kind. Of, I never really I never knew that first of all, and it's yeah, it's interesting to kind of wonder how the movie would have been different.
0: This has a famous story, which I'm sure Matt has heard before and lots of you have heard before as well. But uh, during the filming of this, a big fire broke out on the Genesis Planet stand, soundstage, which I feel like they did this at Paramount Studios. I'm not sure exactly. But anyway,
1: it might have been like in the parking lot or something. I know that sometimes they do stuff like on on the on the studio grounds, but not on a stage. I don't I'm not sure, though.
0: Anyway, some portion of it caught fire, and, I mean, as the story goes, or as the legend goes, uh, William Shatner ran in to help put the fire out in full Kirk gear, and he had written in his book as well that part of the reason why he ran in to do it was he was so afraid that the fire was going to hold up production and that he wouldn't be able to get back to TJ Hooker Season 3 or whatever season he was on. I have read in The 50 Years of Trek that this is maybe slightly over embellished on Chatner's <laughs> side, but I can't say one way or the other, so I'm gonna have to just assume that it happened.
1: He would never, never embellish such <laughs> a thing, Andrew. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and the last thing is that this is the only Star Trek film to date that has a character's name in it. Obviously, it happens a lot with TV series and shows because we had like Data's Day, Q in the Gray, Armand Bashir, Menager Troy. A whole slew of others as well. Spock's brain. Spock's brain even indeed.
1: A much maligned episode of the uh, ter- original series.
0: I can safely say that this is better than Spock's brain.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: Now, one of my favorite things to do is that I love to... I love old posters and I love trailers and, and things like that. I didn't have to do a lot of work this time because uh, we essentially got a teaser poster and then a release poster and and almost all the posters and uh, publicity stuff after that are just different variations on the on, on the, the release poster. So uh, let's just take a second, Matt, here. I, the teaser poster is kind of like blue space. It is Star Trek three, the Spurs for Spock, on the bottom, in the top, it says, join the search. It's kind of like Spock's head in like a quasi-constellation, and the Enterprise is floating off into the left-hand side. Matt, did your 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old self want to put this poster up on the back of your door or do you think this is a little too bland and there's not really enough to uh, to kind of go with? It?
1: I always associated this with the soundtrack cover because I think this is also the soundtrack cover. I had no idea this was the teaser poster. I thought it was pretty cool. But Do I want to put it up on my door? I don't know about that, but I think it's pretty neat.
0: I think that it does a good job of kind of like sparking your interest. You know, if you're in 1983 and, uh, you know, you, you're a big fan of Wrath of you're cruising through the theater as you do, and you see this in that like little coming soon window, right? Like it always seems like in between the, the theaters, there's the coming soon section posters. I feel like this would kind of get you excited. Uh, it's very minimalistic. It is kind of that little bit of hope, which Star Trek is so good at eliciting. And you're thinking that, uh, you know, maybe Star Trek uh, is going to bring Spock back, right? If they're going to go searching for him, maybe he's coming back. And so that could potentially be something very exciting on the horizon. So I think it serves its purpose in that way.
1: Very much so. If I'm a Star Trek fan, leaving uh, whatever movie, Indiana Jones let's say, and I see this on the way out. I'm pretty intrigued.
0: Yep, and now you have the release poster for Star Trek Three. This is just gorgeous. And I mean, those movies that we were just talking about, you know, Ghostbusters, Temple of Doom, Karate Kid, they all had amazing posters. Posters in the 80s, in my opinion anyway, was kind of like at an all-time mecca. You've got... Leonard Nimoy's face in the center. You've got your, like, 1980s warp effect coming at you. The Enterprise, the bird of prey, they're shooting at each other. The bottom, you've got Kirk, you've got the crew, you've got the stars. This is just as good as it gets. A dying planet, a fight for life, the search for Spock. Now, you got. You can't deny, Matt, if you were... I mean, you might have this up in your bedroom now. This is an all-time great, not just Star Trek poster, but it's an all-time great movie poster, period.
1: Well, it's it's certainly very, uh, very nice. I feel like when I was at the X a few years ago, there was uh, someone selling a bunch of like vintage movie posters. And there was a few Star Trek ones in there. I don't think this was one of them, because I think if this one was in there, I probably would have bought it. Uh, I feel like Undiscovered Country was in it, and I feel like maybe like the motion picture was in it.
0: Yeah, and those those are good, but they're not they're not really on the same level as this, really.
1: No, this is uh, this this poster is pretty pretty solid. Like, it's a really nice poster.
0: Yeah, I don't know that it would be my favorite. Like, I think The Wrath of Khan is probably like the all time. Like, you're never gonna touch it. And I was always kind of partial to A Voyage Home as well. But I mean, this is a really cool poster. And I mean, if you're even just a casual Star Trek fan, this is going to get your butt in that seat when you cruise by and see this in the window. I think anyway, the teaser trailer is pretty low key, pretty minor. It doesn't really spoil anything. It just kind of shows Kirk barking orders and just kind of your your regular fare. Did you happen to watch the trailers at all?
1: To this day, I don't think I've seen either trailer.
0: No. Yeah, they're pretty short. They're less than a minute long, and they don't really give too, too much away. They do show the Enterprise, and you might be able to kind of piece together that it gets blown up, but that would probably be about as as much as is revealed or spoiled, but you could also just see it as potentially being damaged badly. And then the toys, because I love me some Star Trek toys. And this, of course, is back before we had uh, Diamond Select and... Playmates, um, this is back in the days of ERTL, a company which I don't even think exists anymore. Completely defunct. We got a Kirk figure, a Spock figure, and Klingon Commander figure. Um, they're pretty good, uh, but I feel like they're near impossible to find nowadays. Not only are they near impossible to find, like they're probably hard to find in any kind of decent condition as well. Uh, but of course, the search for Spock is pretty popular and Um, over the years playmates have done things like the courage figure and uh, eagle moss has done like the excelsior and everything like that as well so um, there has been some stuff for search for spock but it's definitely not nearly as much as you would think Um, i was kind of surprised actually at how little this movie was advertised when i did my research
1: do you want to hazard a guess as to what a set of the four ERTL action figures is going for on eBay currently? In in the package.
0: What was the fourth figure? I didn't realize there was four of them.
1: It uh, looks like it might be Scotty.
0: Oh okay I did not know that there was a Scotty but all four of them in their package I'm gonna say what a thousand bucks?
1: About two, $199.99 US dollars.
0: $200. Yeah okay all right well that's actually not too bad is it? For four figures, fifty bucks. Like they're they're really old at this point. Yeah, that's true. That's actually not as bad as I thought. And that's yeah, that's kind of it, isn't it? Um, this uh is a movie that cost uh around sixteen million to make, and it uh, brought in a box office of eighty-seven million worldwide, which makes it the eighth highest grossing star trek movie i was kind of surprised to see it that far down the list myself but uh yeah for whatever reason this just didn't seem to resonate or potentially after talking about all those other like amazing movies it could have just been lost in the shuffle
1: yeah when you're up against movies of that stature right you know it's it's always tough but hey you know what eighth highest out of what 13
0: yeah right in the middle the one thing i do like to see is it took 16 million to make 87 million is what it did in the box office so at least we knew back in these days that we were going to get more star trek because they were obviously very successful all right matt let's sit our butts in the seats and watch this thing and of course the first thing that we get is a recap of the end of star trek 2 because if you didn't see star trek 2 This movie would make zero sense. So uh, what are your thoughts on the little recap that we get? Do you think that it's good enough? Do you think they could have done more? And we get uh, Leonard Nimoy doing Space, The Final Frontier, which, uh, I mean, if he wasn't coming back, it would have been a nice touch. But even with him coming back, I do kind of think it is a nice little tweak as well.
1: It's one of those things where when you're a little kid, it seems it's really annoying because you're like just show me the movie already but um when i watch through it this time like the slow zoom in there's like a blue tint to it to kind of make it almost seem a little darker kind of it really like first of all it ties the movies together very nicely and and gives you like you said the if you haven't seen the previous movie it gives you sort of a clue of what's happening and i i just really like and and then there's also that like slow transition to the regular color at sort of i think it was as spock was or sorry while kirk was reciting his you know speech when they launched the torpedo it just i don't know i thought it was really impactful to show just how big of a deal that scene was i thought it was a nice little way to tie the movies together and to start star trek three
0: yeah now the only thing i would say is maybe not the like the only thing is is like should they have maybe included david and the genesis planet like is there is it enough if you had never seen anything or do you think they maybe needed more
1: i think there's enough explanation in the movie
0: yes they do do a good job of that
1: that you don't really need to see everything I think you need to see, because the very next scene, really, is Kirk just totally broken by this. He's very, very deeply moved by it. And I think it's important to see what it is that he is so moved and and affected by.
0: Yeah, he. I mean, he's near distraught, really.
1: Exactly, yeah, that's right. And I think it's important to understand fully why he is right off the bat.
0: Uh, which, I mean... Nicely kind of transitions into our next little section here. James Horner did the music for this movie, and you were talking about the soundtrack earlier, which makes me think that you owned it and listened to it when you were growing up. And, I mean, it is just next-level good. Uh, I felt like the the music here is perfect, and then kind of transitioning into uh, the movie proper is also very well done. And we get a kind of a deep emotional use of the captain's log which sets us to where Kirk's mindset is, uh, right off the bat.
1: Yeah, the music is is very good in this. Now, I didn't ha- own the soundtrack, but um, I, I remember when I talked about the cover, they would always show it in like the Star Trek magazines back in the day, where you could like, you know, mail in and order the CD or the cassette tapes, right? Because this was back in the '90s. Um, but the music is, uh, the one thing I I sort of wrote down as I was watching the credits is that it was a lot more subdued than Star Trek Two, the the intro music. I always, I think I always sort of overlooked the music of this movie, but it is really, really good. I have a uh, sort of ongoing playlist where I add, like, orchestral themes, and a, there's a bunch of Star Trek ones in there, and I think I'm going to add Star Trek Three to it because... Uh, it's very, very good. It's
0: very good. It's 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 maybe slightly more subtle than what we get in the motion picture and the Rathacon, but I, I think that it really fits the movie. And one thing that I think that this movie does very well, which I never hear anybody talk about, is that it's very much a mixture of kind of the sadness and, and the grief that Kirk is going through, but they also have a lot of fun with it. And for somebody to sit down and to write a score where, <laughs> I mean, it's a very sad movie where everybody's very upset, but it's also kind of, like, quirky fun, and there's, like, a lot of kind of, like, one-liner jokes as well, like, that's not an easy thing to do. And I know that you, you're you a big fan of music, and, I mean, you must have an appreciation for how difficult that would be to capture, musically, a super serious movie with a fun twist to it if that makes sense
1: yeah and if you listen to the music during the end credits you get that right because you sort of get it you get a bit of the it's a kind of a roller coaster but it's it it, you're right it you feel the sort of grief and you feel the sadness at the beginning but you know it 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 sort of becomes more of an adventure movie as the you sort of get into the middle parts and like you say there's a lot of kind of zingers and funny lines and uh you get that in the music. It is a very, it can be a difficult thing to to do, and I think it, James Horner did a really good job in this film of sort of capturing both kind of ends of the the spectrum here that we're that we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, speaking of the tone and the feeling, I I always like Shatner. Uh, I feel like I have a very soft spot for him. Do you think that this is like, late-stage Shatner when he got really campy and kind of, uh, you know, was, was was breathing into his own brand, do you think that this is kind of, like, the, the key, ultimate Shatner when he was, like, firing all cylinders, or is it somewhere in between? Because, I mean, I just feel like he's great in these beginning scenes, and that, the music helps, but I think that the, the acting has to, to be there as well, and I feel like Shatner's kind of at a level maybe above the other cast, which is horrible to say, but... I, I really felt like Shatner in these beginning ones, I, he's selling me on that feeling.
1: He certainly does. And it starts right... I mean, you mentioned the Captain's Log. It starts right off basically the his first line of the movie. Even though you don't see his face, you can hear it. Uh, he's very, very uh, distraught and, and very uh, grief-stricken by the loss of, of Spock. The, other, the one thing I wrote down is he keeps mentioning it. You know, he, he'll he he mentions it in the log and he just he keeps finding ways of just like just sneaking it in there when he's he's talking to his crew in this sort of opening moments of the movie and uh, you're right that this is probably a, one of Shatner's better moments as far as acting goes because you can hear it you can see it in his body language as he's he's sort of sulking around the bridge as they're sort of limping home to earth and yeah it was it was a surprising uh bit of like really good acting from from William Shatner here
0: now to kind of take a, a slightly negative approach did you think that Uhura and Scotty and Sulu and Chekhov were maybe not really as beat up about it as kirk and i mean especially some of the minor guys there's that one guy who's like hey do you think there's gonna be a party when we get back like i mean i don't know it seemed like everyone was pretty upset back on the end of wrath of khan and now all of a sudden only kirk is upset it felt like to me anyway
1: one thing about the guy who asked about the party Did you know that that's uh the actor who played jackie chiles our second jackie chiles sighting Oh, no. is it really it is yeah, this is his uh, his second Star Trek appearance.
0: Wow, okay. Well, that is an excellent little piece of trivia there, Matt.
1: Yep, yep. You can impress your friends. Where is the guy's name? Oh, this is embarrassing. I have to Google it. I should know this.
0: Phil Morris.
1: Phil Morris. Phil Morris. Uh, I don't know if he's credited, but if you go to Memory Alpha, he's it's there.
0: For Star Trek, The Search for Spock, trainee Foster.
1: Trainee Foster. The guy who wanted the party. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Phil, Jackie Childs liked to party, didn't he?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, after he wins Big Case, of course. Uh, but yes. anyway, what do you think of that thought? That, uh, you know, Kirk is definitely more upset than everybody else, which makes sense because that's going to complete the arc. But it does seem like they got over it awfully quick.
1: Well, the one, th- the, the only... Th- thing I would maybe say that was is counter to that is yeah I think you're right because when he calls down to Scotty and and asks about how long to you know get the ship back to full power or whatever and he he does that thing where he says oh you it'll take eight weeks but I know you don't have eight weeks I'll do it for you in two which is you know typical Mr. Scott the one thing I would say though is is he asks Chekhov to go to the science station and Chekhov was very hesitant he had that moment of, he sort of looked at it and he was like, uh, well, I don't really want to do this. You know, I feel wrong doing it, but he did even, you know, he did eventually go to the science station. Um, but yeah, I think that's really the only instance where you see any kind of hesitation or any kind of, uh, you know, feeling of abnormality from any of the other members of the crew. So I think you do have a pretty good point that, yeah, it looked you know Kirk was obviously completely broken up over it, and and nobody else really seemed to be that deeply moved.
0: Yeah, I mean Scotty's a great example, right? Because when he phones down, he's like, "Well, I could do it in eight weeks. It should take eight weeks, but I could do it in 2 I'm going to keep my my reputation up. It's like, uh, don't you remember that like one of your best friends died yesterday? That's kind of what I mean. But again, that's the way this movie is. It has that lighter tone sprinkled in with that kind of more upsetting thing about Spock being being dead and I mean I don't think a movie where they just sit around moping about would have been good either don't get me wrong there but they're kind of treading a fine line and for me right now I feel like it's working and I mean if that isn't if that isn't tickling your fancy oh my goodness the ship reveals in this movie are next level now I cheaped out and I bought the Standard edition to watch this because I had to rent it. Uh, I didn't have it anywhere around. And even the standard edition without all the bells and the whistles, the Enterprise with all the battle damage, but also when the Bird of Prey uncloaks. My goodness, I had completely forgotten how much i love that scene i mean i guess we might as well talk about the the effects in general but more specifically the model work here
1: well and getting ahead of ourselves slightly the excelsior too
0: oh the excelsior as well yes yeah there's
1: a nice good long look at the excelsior when they first get in the space dock um i mean you know how i am with ships i love the ships um and this is during the good old Model era where they actually, you know, build models and film the models instead of just, uh, you know, doing it on a computer. Love that the Enterprise still wasn't totally fixed up. Uh, you could still see that there were uh, parts of the ship that were that were still kind of messed up. And they, I I wrote down, uh, you know, they can repair some of the battle damage, but they couldn't get out the paintbrush and like fix the scorch marks on the back of the bridge. <laughs> sticking with the the ships and the models i i thought that they were just great i mean even that little um that little ship that the the people that were giving krug the information was on it even like even that ship you know it, it looked run down and dirty and and old and and i mean even that ship looked really cool um it looked the way that they needed it to look
0: you're talking about the little one that krug blows up
1: yeah that kruga you know basically they they that that valcris Lady was on and she gave the information and then Krug was like, oh, you've seen it? Well, see you later. You're going to get blown up.
0: Yeah. Did you think that that was kind of a weird scene? Because they didn't really explain who, the, who that lady was, who those guys were, where they got the data from, how they arranged this uh, this get together, this uh, this meeting, why he wants it. Do we even care or is it just kind of supposed to be one of those things where... Okay, now he's got the data, and uh, he's the bad guy. You know, he's evil. That's all we're supposed to take from it.
1: Yeah, I don't. I think it's just sort of a way to that Krug is now able to have this information, and he wants and he, you know, he sees it, and he wants more, and he wants to turn it into a weapon. And I guess if he just sort of like heard about it through the rumor mill or the grapevine. Would he really go to all these lengths and and violate treaties and so on to go get it, or or if he had this data that was a little bit more detailed, it would maybe make more sense. That's the only thing I would really say about that scene.
0: I, it just it's weird too, though, because like right before she, he blows her up, she's like, "My love, it was worth it," or whatever. And I don't know. It's just kind of like, oh, there's a whole backstory here, maybe that I guess I got to go read the novelization to to get
1: maybe they should make a short treks about it
0: you know what it couldn't be any worse than the stuff they've been packing up <laughs> for a short trek so uh yeah i definitely uh would be on board for that but what are your thoughts on Krug? because um he is obviously going to be the big bad and the first thing that we uh see him do is you know blow these two random middle-aged aliens away you know he's got the ghostbusters dog <laughs> as well so i mean that's that's something
1: uh number 1 loved the klingon bridge i thought it was very cool it was dark like we you know we talked about this not too long ago on a matter of honor the bridge was raised like significantly and it was very clear that krug was the captain he was in charge and you do not mess with them and i mean we see it later on uh, i won't i won't jump ahead here but we we see it later on as well very uh <laughs> very explicitly that you know you don't you don't mess around with him or he'll make you pay he's very tyrannical and i think i may mention this already he's very heavy-handed and i i think that that kind of is fitting for a klingon commander the thing that kind of confuses me and this is true of star trek five as well because there's a klingon villain in that movie as well in this period of time, it's like how what are they what is the Klingon Empire doing? Are they just handing these Claptons birds <laughs> of prey and saying, Do what you want, just don't start a war?
0: Right. Uh that is an excellent question.
1: Be- because he's flying around, it doesn't seem like he's under orders, it doesn't seem like he has any sort of mission or agenda other than just gaining more power for the Klingons. And later on in the, the movie, like, you know, Kirk even points out that, like, you know, you're violating treaty and your very presence here is an act of war. Like, isn't that not something the Klingons would want their captains to doing?
0: Yeah, that's kind of true. And you're right. They do. Yeah, it's not just this one off like it's a one off crazy guy. We see this a couple of times. So, yeah, that is is it i mean at this point is the klingons are they supposed to be so spread out that maybe they're they're just not really sure what their guys are up to what they're doing
1: well i almost wonder if it's like a an artifact of that story where you have romulans that stole it cuz if it was a bunch of romulans that stole the ship they're obviously not affiliated with the start with the romulan empire they're obviously just doing what they want so i almost wonder if that's kind of a leftover uh, piece of that
0: it, and I mean, it very well could be that that would definitely make sense. Uh, do you have an th- opinion on the dog, or is that just something left?
1: It hasn't aged the best. The fact, like the animatronics or whatever it was that they used, but I I, I thought it was kind of neat that he had a little uh, that that dog and that <laughs> he tells the guy to feed it, and the guy looks like he just signed his death sentence. Yeah, he's like goop. <laughs> Yeah. No, I was it was kinda of, I thought it was neat that he was there. I mean, obviously the effect is maybe a little dated, but
0: I also kinda of feel like we don't get another Klingon dog until I believe into darkness there's a dog. That's the next time we see a Klingon dog. Is that true?
1: It's possible. I feel like maybe there was a Q episode where he conjured up like a, a Targ ooh. morph ooh, had like a right, pet yeah. targ. But I don't know if this is the same thing. I don't know if it's, this is supposed to be a Targ or something different.
0: Yeah, I actually don't really know what he's supposed to be either. But, uh, yeah, I I don't know. The dog, it, 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 like you said, the the effect didn't really hold up by today's standards. So it does just kind of seem funny and cheesy. But, yeah, I also thought that it was definitely a lot like the Ghostbusters dog, which, I mean, that movie just came out a a month before this one. So maybe they just had them lying around and they they just used the same one painted them black i don't know for sure but they're both paramount so could very well have been Do, do you have a hard time with christopher lloyd not to to jump ahead of uh ahead of it but do you do you see like doc brown in 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 makeup here uh or are you able to kind of your disbelief or whatever they call that
1: well here's the thing like i i never really saw any of his other movies before this ah
0: so you kind of feel like doc brown is doing uh klingon
1: captain krug (laughs) well yeah so i mean i don't i don't really have any previous uh notion of who i think he plays a pretty convincing klingon Uh, i didn't think he was bad i didn't find it distracting even though he's done other things that i have seen since now I could see how maybe someone who grew up on Back to the Future then suddenly watches this could have a difficult time with it.
0: Yeah, and I feel like that maybe is partially kind of what what I kind of feel. Like I definitely have seen Back to the Future more times than I've seen search for Spock probably, but as the movie goes on, it becomes less and less noticeable to me, which means that uh, you know, it obviously isn't it isn't that big. Of an effect, it's not that big of a deal because I notice it less and less as it, as it goes on. So um I think that that's probably a good thing and and speaks to his acting anyway. Let's bounce back to Kirk and Co. And, uh, we get this space dock scene. So I'm assuming that this is space dock one. Like this is the this is the space dock that is around Earth.
1: Yeah, because they were returning to Earth. So yeah, this would be like the. Uh, you're probably right, Space Dock one,
0: Zero one. <laughs> And I think that in the Star Trek video games, when you go to Earth, there is a big space station there, and it is, yeah, number one. How big are these things? My goodness gracious, like the Enterprise is, I thought at the time it was supposed to be like the biggest ship, or at least it was during the TV show. And now when it cruises into the space station, it looks like it's literally going through a little tiny window where the space station is always this big. Um, is it just this one? Because it's like the home base, the home station. And like, would this even be possible to build something this big? Like this just seems humongous to me.
1: It is rather large. Uh, the logistics of building it. I mean, who knows? It's 24th cent or I guess 23rd century. Maybe they can, maybe they got the, they've got the skills and power and the skills and the materials, but yeah you're this thing is enormous like it i don't even i don't even want to hazard a guess of like how many meters or kilometers tall and around it is it was just massive now the only thing i could maybe compare to is in the original series there's the trouble with tribbles where they go to that one space station called uh k7 it was decent size like but i don't it was not nearly this massive
0: yeah, and I feel like the space stations that we saw during the TNG run were never this big.
1: Wasn't it the same one?
0: I think they copied and pasted it, but I feel like they like shrunk it down when you saw it compared to the Enterprise. I could be wrong. So, I mean, if I am, then by all means send us an email and, and correct me. But it just seemed really, really big. But that being said, it was definitely really, really cool. <laughs> I love the way that this space station looks, and I love the fact that, yeah, I love the fact that it, it, I don't know, It just it's very visually appealing, I think. This is kind of what we're going to end up getting from here on out until we get to Deep Space Nine, obviously, but this is kind of the model for the space station that we're going to see in Star Trek.
1: Well, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I like it's interesting that it's taller than it is around, but it, I, I think it looks really neat. It's got that giant like upper section where all the ships go, and then it's got a big round cylindrical kind of thing on the bottom, which is where I assume everyone kinda of lives and all the offices are. I think it's a pretty cool space station, yeah. It looks neat.
0: Yeah, and so uh they're back, right? They they've made it uh they've made it back to to Earth and I feel like I mean, Earth is typically uh, something that we see with a little bit of fanfare and a little bit uh, of you know pomp circumstance. Uh, we don't really get anything like that here. Were you kind of surprised or disappointed that there wasn't a bit more to it, um, or is it kind of like that's not what this is about?
1: I I don't know. They don't. They don't. I feel like they probably return to Earth a fair bit, so that doesn't really surprise me.
0: I mean, I guess. Jackie Childs isn't going to get his party. Or at least that's what it feels like.
1: Well, Jack, he probably knows all the good places to go on that space dock.
0: Yes, no doubt. I'm sure there are all kinds of good pubs on uh, on that space dock. (laughs) This next section. Oh, my goodness. So, the Excelsior. I have a very specific feeling about it, but I... I want to hear what you think of the Excelsior first.
1: It's an awesome-looking ship, and uh, it seems it, it's one of those things where like everyone seems to have heard about it. You know, it's like it's like a new kind of car with like a new kind of engine, or like you know, recently we've had hybrid cars and electric cars like remember there's that part where they you know sulu's like (laughs) i hear it's got transwarp drive you know like this is like the next new thing and everyone's kind of like heard about it and everyone's all excited about it except of course mr scott who wasn't very impressed with it i I thought it was kind of neat that they have this brand new ship brand new class of ship with this brand new technology and like everyone's sort of like in awe over it and everyone's sort of like heard about it and all the new stuff that it's got uh i i thought that was actually pretty neat i mean the ship itself is incredible it's a very very nice ship and this is the first time we ever see it
0: i have always uh, let me preface uh there's a game Called Fleet Captains. I believe you and I have actually sat down and played Fleet Captains before. It's a board game where you know one person plays as the Federation, one person plays as the Klingons and uh, you kinda have like this uh, big long adventure. Anyway it's a really great game but one of the ships you can play as is the Excelsior. And the Excelsior is the most annoying ship in the world because every time you go to move you have to roll a dice and if you roll a 5 or a 6 then you don't move because the Excelsior warp <laughs> friggin' drive basically isn't functioning for that turn. And
1: Mr. Scott was busy uh, that day.
0: <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I have rolled a five or a six driving that stupid Excelsior around, and it drives me absolutely wild. Now, that being said, outside of the game, man, is this a beautiful ship. I mean, this is this is just a, an amazing looking ship. I love how the they do kind of like the whole Doctor No thing here, where everybody's talking about it and everybody's wowed by it. You know, like you mentioned, I hear it's got trans warp drive. Like you don't even know what that is. It's just like totally you know made up thing. But just the fact that everybody's like gawking at it, and also the fact that Scotty doesn't like it almost makes you more intrigued, you know what I mean? Like, oh, that seems kinda suspicious that he's so into engineering and stuff like that. Why why is he against it? You know, like it's just it's they they do such a great job of of making you interested in this ship. And one of my favorite lines is if my grandmother had wheels she'd be a wagon. Like that is just a legendary way to describe the uh, the transwarp drive, and uh, yeah, I mean, we get to see the Excelsior again, right? Like uh, it pops back up in Undiscovered Country, and does it? Is it in Final
1: Frontier? No, it makes a brief appearance no. at the end of Star Trek IV, though.
0: Yes, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I uh, yeah, I think the Excelsior is great. We also see it in that Voyager episode where uh, we flash back to when. Uh, Captain Sulu. Remember that episode, the 25th anniversary?
1: Yeah, yeah, flashback.
0: Yeah, that takes place on the Excelsior as well. So yep. anyway, the Excelsior is great. I digress. Let's uh, kind of move on here into the, the, the meat of it. Um, I, I was always under the impression that the Federation never really had a whole ton of ships. The idea that you're going to decommission like your best ship seems... Slightly strange to me.
1: Well, it's kind of a difficult thing because it's a ship that has been through a lot and I feel like it's been pretty beaten up over the course of. I mean, the Admiral mentions that it's 20 years old and it always seems to find trouble. So maybe. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, so I mean, maybe it's. Maybe it's sort of had a shorter lifespan than a normal ship, but I mean, 20 years. That that's kind of a short lifespan. I feel like for a starship of that size, I mean, you think they would last maybe a little bit longer than that. But I mean, it's not totally inconceivable,
0: right? And I mean, I guess are we supposed to kind of be under the impression that you know, like Kirk's five year mission at the end of the five years, it was supposed to, you know, that was the end of the line kind of thing, and that you know, all these extra years in addition were were kind of, I don't want to say patching it together or taping it together, but I mean, they did do the refit uh, for the motion picture. And so was that just kind of trying to extend it past where it was already basically done at that point?
1: Well, I always sort of looked at the refit and thought, okay, well, there must be like some new technology that They need to put in there and and maybe the propulsion systems are more efficient and all that. I mean, it's also an excuse to completely redo the ship and make it look way cooler, which (laughs) I think is really the new, the real reason for it.
0: Yeah, I think we can all agree.
1: I mean, it is kind of curious that they would refit it and then relaunch it. And then like a couple years later, ah, you know what? It's been beaten up too much. We got to get rid of it. It's a little. It's a little puzzling.
0: A little bit, yeah. But I mean, I guess if we just assume that that's the case, then then that that's that's where it is. Everybody kind of gets their own new assignments. Uh, Sulu has been assigned to the Excelsior, uh, and you've got. Uh, is now kind of working for the communications and stuff like that, um, and it just kind of seems like, uh, you know, we're going to be, you know, they're going to kind of go off and do do some different things. Uh, we also get Marcus is now working on the science vessel Grissom, which you mentioned in the introduction. And he has gone back to the Genesis planet to do some, like, research and some, some studying and things. Um, number one, it's really cool to see, like, a science vessel, like a true science vessel that has not that many weapons and stuff like that. I mean, I think it's kind of cool that uh, Marcus is, is back, number one, and, and um, Savik is back. Uh, is this like slightly strange just in terms of timing? Because like, how long is this after the Wrath of Khan? Like, would it all, would it, does it make sense that he would already have a commission and be working on the Genesis planet at this point? Or does it not really work? That in terms of timing.
1: It is kind of left ambiguous, but I always sort of took it that it's maybe like a few weeks or maybe a month after because the enterprise is still pretty dinged up from its its battle with 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 Khan in the nebula.
0: Right, and they've got to patch it up.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um but they haven't quite fixed all of it, so it kind of suggests that yeah, maybe some, you know, it's been maybe a bit of time. But yeah it is kind of odd because yeah david marcus uh somehow managed to like wrangle a sci- starfleet science ship and to go study the planet while so i mean that's not something that I feel would happen instantaneously, so it's kind of it's it's it it is a bit of a there is a bit of a discrepancy perhaps in the amount of time that's passed.
0: Did they really need to use Savik here, or could they maybe just have done somebody different?
1: The character's there, and she was, you know, on the ship, on the Enterprise, when all this went down. So, I mean, I, I feel like there was... I, I, I But it's also been recast. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there was some inkling that maybe they would make her a regular in the the movies i actually uh recently was reading that they even toyed with the idea of her being the traitor in the undiscovered country oh okay bringing savik back in that movie and her being she be her being the one that ended up you know being part of that whole conspiracy to sabotage the the peace conference which would have been pretty shocking i think
0: it definitely would have made it a little bit more depth to it that's for sure
1: so i I think that's maybe the reason why we we they bring they brought savik back and i guess it just kind of didn't work out the way they hoped
0: it really is kind of unfortunate they couldn't get uh kirstie alley back but i feel like she had probably become such a big name at this point that it's just not worth the money i guess or she was too big for it
1: i feel like there was a movie that came out shortly after star trek 2 that she was in that really...
0: Set her to the the moon?
1: Yeah, I don't know what it would have been, though. I mean, Rathcomb was 82, so it would have had to be like probably 83.
0: So she was in a movie called One More Chance. That was in 83, and that was it. Although in television side of things, she was on The Love Boat and Masquerade, which was a... It looks kind of like a <laughs> like a crummy espionage show. So I don't know why she would thought that she was so great. But obviously years later she ended up doing Cheers and she also ended up doing, oh, what was her? Was it Veronica's Closet? Was that her show? It's unfortunate they couldn't get the same actor, but uh it's not like it's never happened where Star Trek has recast somebody. So it's not the end of the world.
1: Well, Tora toward, ziol uh, was recast yeah. multiple multiple times. times.
0: And (laughs) my favorite character in Star Trek, Alexander, how many times has he been recast?
1: That's also true.
0: I mean, in fairness, I guess, uh, Worf kept leaving him behind, so they just recast him new when uh, (laughs) when it came about. (laughs) Let's get into the meat, Matt, because, I mean, we're cruising along in this uh, movie, and then we get Sarek showing up. There's that one little strange scene where... Kirk goes down, and Doctor McCoy has broken into Spock's room, and he's saying, "You have to save me. You, you told me you got to bring me back." Uh, but that's kind of the only real, like, major Spock thing we've seen so far. Uh, and then Sarek shows up, and I'm pretty sure that at this point we had ne- we hadn't seen Mark Leonard in Star Trek for a long time. By the time he shows up here. And so that must have been pretty kind of like, whoa, big deal at the time. And he's upset that Spock has been left on the Genesis planet because Spock's living spirit, his Katra, as you will, is still living on. Don't know that we've ever seen it or talked about it on RTR. It's not really a lot of, it's not a lot of episodes that kind of delve into this and there's not a lot of things that have ever come up where we've talked about it so what are your ideas on the the katra or the vulcan soul
1: on the katra specifically it is interesting that a race so or an alien race so so based in like their culture so rooted in logic that they would have this sort of otherworldly living spirit that you can't possibly explain logically uh that that's Kind of a very interesting contradiction. And later on in the movie, we see a lot of like sort of ritualistic things, which I always kind of found very interesting with the Vulcans, because again, they're so rooted in logic and and rationality. And yet they have this whole other sort of side where they are very, they, they do all these ritualistic things that you can't really explain, like, why would you do that? In a logical way, so it's kind of an interesting kind of balancing uh, act, I suppose. But I think the whole notion that you sort of have a living spirit, uh, well, I mean, I, it, it's kind of interesting, especially for a Vulcan.
0: Yeah, the only thing that I would maybe say encounter is that they do have a telekinetic ability, and so the idea that they could use that telekinetic ability for something to be transferred, I guess maybe is something that makes sense and is something that is worth delving into. Um, it is kind of strange that they never really utilize this a whole lot in the TV series. I, I know that it's been mentioned and it's kind of been dropped here and there, but... Um, with the exception of Enterprise, have they ever really done a, a you know a deep dive into the, the the Katra and the Vulcan backstory?
1: I think we get more about the Katra in that episode of Seinfeld than we do in any of the well, other that's series.
0: That's exactly it, right? Uh, what was it that Jerry said? Oh, right. Uh, she's not really gone. If we can find a way to remember her. That's the line that ruined my life.
1: As he's pouring mustard into Jerry's <laughs> coffee. I, that's very, I always remember that scene.
0: Yes. For for those of you who don't have any idea what we're talking about, George's fiancee died and Jerry dropped that little nugget of information at her funeral, which led to uh, the family setting up a foundation, which, of course, George was the, the chair of or he was part of. Uh, when he didn't want to be.
1: And it took up all of his spare time.
0: <laughs> Ruining the summer of George. Uh, but anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, the Katra the thing is, is very interesting. Um, I actually feel like, now that I'm mentioning it, not to kind of harp on the Seinfeld thing, but also there is an episode where Kramer is uh, trying to inspire Elaine, and he tells her that uh, she needs to tap into her inner Katra, and then she does, and
1: it's the same episode. Oh, is it the same episode? It is, because remember, he's the karate. Yeah, he's taking the karate class with the kids or something. Yeah, but he doesn't tell Elaine that until he says, later. Yeah, I... <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic. It's oh, okay, classic. so that's
0: that's the same episode. Okay, perfect.
1: It is. Yeah, I don't
0: know. It's it's yeah. It's definitely a, a very weird thing. I feel like if this was on a regular episode this would be kind of maybe like a bit out there. But because it's in the movies, I tend to kind of take it with a grain of salt. And, and I mean, we go in even a step further when we flash back to the, uh, the Genesis planet. And now there's like those weird worm things there. They've gotten a life signal and Spock is gone, which kind of getting a little bit on the, the crazy side. Or are you still along for the ride?
1: I thought they gave a pretty decent explanation right like when they find the little now they weren't worms at first they were just these weird kind of slithery they look like just giant bugs or sl- like slugs kind of and there was that line where David said the microbes on the probe casing or the torpedo casing hyper evolved into these things which I can buy that I guess It's not like a totally out there explanation. Um, But then, yeah, when they find Spock's robe, but he's gone, it's like, oh, okay. Like, remember in, uh, what was it, U.S. Marshals, where Tommy Lee Jones is like, oh, we're always fascinated when we find leg irons with no legs in them. It's the same kind of thing where it's like we find a burial robe with no dead person in it. So it's kind of sort of piques your interest. Cause like, Oh, that's weird. Like his robes there, but he's not like, what's going on here. Is he alive? Did he run away? This is sort of the first, it's like the first sort of inkling that, okay, maybe he's alive somehow.
0: Right. Yeah. Any chance of you thinking that Spock is going to remain dead is gone at this point. Like, you know, for sure he's coming back at this point, or at least I, I mean, I, I, th- I think that when you they find this, the burial robes and he's gone, it's like, okay. The whole, th- I mean, and it's called search for Spock, so we know that they're going to be working towards getting him back. But um, it's getting a little zany here, um, and uh, we continue to just like dial that zaniness up because Bones is now kind of doing like a Bones Spock Mel, like he's kind of got like a Tuvix vibe to him here, uh, where he's he's kind of being played by two two different. Uh, you know, kind of two different entities inside of him. DeForest Kelly is amazing. He, he does such a great job with this. What are your thoughts on uh, on Spock and Bones? Or I guess Spock trying to come out in Bones. Um, and he goes to that amazing bar. Oh my goodness. That like, why has, not, why has somebody not uh, made that bar yet? Maybe that's what we need to do, Matt. Maybe we need to like pool our money and we'll open that uh, like Starfleet bar at some point what what do you think
1: like it's a very cool bar they got like the the holographic like airplane game oh yeah there's all these uh like aliens it it was almost reminiscent of the the cantina on tatooine yes. in the first star wars movie because it's very lively there's a lot of sort of activity and a lot of aliens sort of milling around um i thought it was a very very interesting very cool scene and yeah, we need to. We, someone needs to build that bar, uh, just chock full of aliens, and uh, yeah, go check it out.
0: It's actually a shame that you know we've got like Star Wars Land and Marvel Land in uh, in Disney, and got uh, Harry Potter Land and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're a long way away from from getting a Star Trek Land. There used to be one in Vegas a million years ago.
1: I wanted to go to that play thing so more bad, than anything I when I was a kid.
0: When they had like the Deep Space Nine bar and everything else, it just oh would have been so good. I would love to see another uh, kind of in rendition of that, or, or maybe if Disney buys out Star Trek, we would get something like that. But yeah, something like this would, would be kind of like next level, I think.
1: And an interesting bit of irony. So that bar set was uh, reused as a part of uh, sick bay. Oh, really? Part of it. Yeah, that's what it says. Yeah, so it's interesting that McCoy ends up in this, you know, dark, dreary bar that actually is reused part of Sick Bay.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, cool. All right. Well, uh, the next scene is kind of what uh, you were. We've had this conversation, whether it's been on the show or not, I'm not sure, but the stealing of the Enterprise. Um, this has to be one of the one of the most famous most remembered scenes in the search for spock is when they when they steal the enterprise this is such a great use of all the minor characters they do such a great job of you know really making it feel like everybody is important and everybody is part of the team, I guess, as it were. I'm assuming that you love when they steal the Enterprise.
1: Well, I like that they made it as complex as they did, and there was different parts of the whole plan that they had to do. Like it wasn't just like they sort of wander up to the airlock and they're like, "Oh, what's that over there?" And then the you know someone nerve pinches the guy, and it was like, okay, they got to bust Dr. McCoy out of security complex because he did something he wasn't supposed to and then you know Mr. Scott's gotta fully automate the ship number one and then he's also gotta you know sabotage the Excelsior so that they can't chase after them and then there's Uhura's little part and it's exactly like you say you know every character I mean except Chekhov he doesn't really he didn't really do anything I don't think. He just sort of shows up.
0: Yeah, he he doesn't really <laughs> get as much as the others, no.
1: Yeah, but but like you said, you know, they use the different characters uh, to to pull this off. It's not just you know just a quick thing, and I thought that I think that's part of the beauty of this this scene and this whole sort of notion of like they're going to steal the ship because it, it's a starship. I mean, it's like if you and me and a couple of our friends were like, okay, we're going to go steal a like a, a naval vessel well we can't just like go and like sort of you know trick the guard and and be away scot-free you know there's more to it than that and i like that they they sort of made this this whole part where they steal the ship a little they made it fairly complex but not not like way too over convoluted that you're like you know 20 minutes of of them sort of putting all these pieces in motion you're like all right just steal the ship already right it was it was done at a you know, there was an appropriate length so that you're not, like, bored of them, you know, <laughs> getting getting everything ready to steal the ship.
0: It is kind of interesting, too, that, I mean, for a ship that is slowly backing up while they wait to open the space doors can be exciting, you know? Like, you don't have to shoot your way out all the time, which they could have easily done, right? They could have fought the Excelsior And only aim for the engines. And they could have blasted away the doors. And they could have done this in a a million ways that would have been a big, flashy action scene. But they really don't need to. Like, honestly, I think that the tension is good here. And the fact that the doors, like, just open at the last possible second. And everything here really works. I mean... Did you think that saving the fighting for later was a good idea or do you think that maybe this is too boring and, you know, they should have blasted their way out?
1: Oh, no, I I love the way they did it. I love when they're sort of backing out and Kirk like leans and in and he's sort of like, and now Mr. Scott and he's like, sir, the doors Yes, sir. I'm working on it. You know, it's like <laughs> I just love that little exchange, you know. It's so it's so relatable, right? Because how many times have you been like, you know, trying to do something and you got someone leaning over your shoulder and you're you're, you're like, I I'm trying here. Like just let me fix this thing and and yeah like you said the doors open like just in the nick of time and and you're like half expecting them to start opening and the you know the warp engine scrapes the side of it or something uh i thought the way they did it was was really was really good i don't i, I love that they didn't just sort of turn the ship around and just start blasting at the door with the the, the with their phasers you know it's uh it, it was hilarious i thought
0: And did I mean it's so hard to go back now, but it, they leave it to make you feel like they're gonna slip out, and then they're gonna close the doors on the Excelsior. Uh, but then, of course, the you know the the classic move where they pull out a couple of different things, and, and uh, you know it doesn't uh, it doesn't take off. I thought was again just a nice little. A nice little touch.
1: Well, <laughs> I, I thought it was kind of funny. There's that, that part where, uh, you know, they're they're trying to get the warp drive going and they're the captain's, like, looking at the screen and it's all, like, flashing and stuff and then all of a sudden it blinks out and it just says, Good morning, Captain. I thought that was hilarious. I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, very clever that they would... That, that earlier on they would have Scotty, like, reassigned so he's in, like, prime position to just completely sabotage the ship.
0: Yeah, I, I do feel like the, it reminded me a lot of... Remember in Empire Strikes Back when they, they go off to, uh, I guess they get off Hoth or whatever, and, and there's the classic line where Han says, watch this, and he, like, goes to hammer it, <laughs> and it doesn't go? It has kind of a similar way because they, are like, activate the trans warp drive. If he thinks he's going to get away using the warp drive, then I, he's going to you know, rude awakening, and then they go to hit it and it doesn't work. I, it's, it's kind of a similar type scenario, but just kind of flipping it around where it's the bad guys whose ship doesn't work, which I, I thought was uh, was was a nice touch.
1: Now, we forgot the best part of that whole thing, which is when the captain's laying in bed in and <laughs> yeah. filing his nails and all of a sudden there's a yellow alert and he's like extremely puzzled and he sort of calls the bridge and he's like how can there be a yellow alert in space dock and they're like he's someone stealing the enterprise <laughs> I'll just, that's so funny. Yeah. Cause that captain was like just so smug and so arrogant, even though we only see him for a very brief time. Yeah. And you know, he's, he's just sitting there f- like filing his nails of all things like in bed in his uniform. Yeah.
0: And he's got like that little club <laughs> thing that he carries yes, the with club.
1: Him. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You're right. Yes. Very. It's like kind of like you sort of associate that with like a, an army Sergeant or something.
0: Yeah. When I was in high school, there was like a history teacher who had like this little, it was like a little tiny baseball bat. And whenever he was up at the front of the class, uh, like lecturing, he would kind of like tap the baseball bat like into his hand, like uh, like not aggressively, but just like kind of like ominously. And I always hated that. I thought that it was like, like a... a yeah, like an army sergeant or something would do it to like kind of uh make everybody sure that he, they knew that he was like a tough guy or something. I don't know. Um it's a great way, a little tiny knot or a little tiny thing that just kind of makes the guy unlikable. And he even like you can see that it's like sitting behind his head and when he goes to the bridge, he like purposely grabs it so that he's got something to fiddle with and and something to, to hold <laughs> on to, which, yeah, there's just there's so many little good things in this movie. It, it really does get uh, unjust flack because uh, they do a lot of things right here. From my perspective, I, I mean, I'm having a great time, uh, a great time here.
1: So while we're speaking of captains, uh, Captain Esteban, who's the captain of the Grissom, he did you notice that he was like such a real such a stickler for the regulations? Yes,
0: I did notice that. They they went out of their way to make anybody who wasn't Kirk a super by the book rule follower like dot your lowercase j's and, <laughs> and cross your t's. Um it is I think it's to make Kirk and everybody seem like a badass because like This is the movie, too, where, like, Kirk is wearing, like, a leather jacket and Bones is wearing a leather jacket. Like, they're not wearing the uniforms. It's almost like, uh, you know, the the militaristic thing is not cool anymore. So we're going to throw that stuff away and everybody's going to be a badass and and they're going to they're going to be on the run like rogue renegades. I think that's kind of what they're going for maybe.
1: Yeah. And I think you're, I think you're totally right about that. They definitely come off that way. And I think you're right that they sort of purposely made the other captains in this real sticklers for regulations. I mean, this Esteban guy, like, they're studying this planet and they come up, come across something totally unexpected. And he's like citing regulations and, and like, no, 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 you can't beam that up until we know it's safe and all this and that. And, and I almost found it a bit distracting because it's, it's so much, you know, it's not like, it's not like he casually mentions, no, no, don't bring that to the ship. It's not, you know, we got to make sure it's safe. He's like, Oh no, you don't mister. According to regulation, just such a stickler, like it was. It, it was almost distracting in a way.
0: Yeah, and I mean the ultimate irony is, is that by not beaming him up and you know beaming the other two down, when Christopher Lloyd shows up, they basically get blown up, and the other two survive, right? So it's almost as if he's kind of being chagrined because of, yeah, yeah, like it's uh, it totally backfires on him. Uh, following all the regulations ends up not working at all so I don't know what you had kind of for your for your halfway uh, point but I mean this is pretty close to where I was at they find baby Spock which I mean at this point in time I don't know that I uh, you know that, that I'm for or against baby Spock um, but I definitely hated baby Spock when they use him in discovery um, what are your thoughts on <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on? This revelation, I guess.
1: Well, he's certainly no baby Yoda. Oh yeah, uh, definitely
0: not. He's definitely no baby Yoda.
1: Not not quite of that stature, but um, I thought it was an interesting choice that they would have him sort of revert back to a earlier state of development, and then have him like sort of rapidly aging along with the planet. The science is, you know, dicey, obviously, (laughs) but I mean, does it really matter? I mean, here he is; he's alive. Even though he's you know not quite Spock that they were probably expecting, I just I don't know. It was kind of an interesting choice to have him his aging sort of tied to the planet and how as he got older uh, and more rapidly the planet was like destroying itself. I don't know if there was like some meaning they were trying to get at there, but uh, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting choice uh, to have him like sort of rapid aging back to his his regular. Age spock age
0: yeah and i mean i guess at the same point in which they find him we also get this revelation that david and like i guess his mother as well because she was also working on the genesis project in the last movie but they also kind of had to cut corners i guess and this was never really said or he never really told anybody up until up until now kind of thing, I guess.
1: Yeah, there's a scene down on the planet that I that I always I don't know if it was maybe not on the VHS tape that I kept watched a bazillion times or if I just didn't pick it up. But I, he basically says that he used like a banned substance in order to get it to work um, or in order to get it to work. I think he said that, like, in order to get around this one issue, if he had used conventional means or accepted means, it would have taken an extra bunch of years to to get the, the Genesis device to work. And instead of waiting and doing it properly, he just said, well, I'm just going to use this banned substance or the material and it'll be done. And and you know Savick sort of makes a point of saying like oh well you know you're not unlike your father you know you're not willing to you're you're willing to change the rules in order to reach your your goals and I I always I thought that was a very interesting scene that I always kind of missed.
0: Yeah, when you're a kid, I kind of feel like you just don't really care about that kind of stuff, um, and it's very short, but it, it definitely yeah it it's, it's definitely. Uh, a little wrinkle or a little bit of added plot here that that, that definitely is cool. And I think one of the downsides is is that um, I guess, like, the Genesis planet is still kind of in the process of forming. And so, like, they're constantly going from, like, you know, jungle to cold temperatures to, like, wind. And it's kind of, like, hectic down there. And so it would be very easy to To miss this portion because there's so much going on at, at this point.
1: Yeah, they have the blizzard in the like uh, desert area with the cacti and and whatnot.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was it, a little
1: bit unexpected.
0: Yeah, no, it's really cool, but it's also yeah, it just it's kind of hard to follow. But um, that's about the halfway mark ish. This movie, like I mentioned, is an hour forty five, and I believe that that kind of happens around like the fifth. Five minute mark uh maybe before you uh we sign off uh what are you feeling by the time you get to the halfway mark of this movie
1: oh i'm loving it you know they've just stolen the enterprise they're headed to the genesis planet and things are kind of going getting very strange and weird there krug is on his way and he looks like he's looking for trouble you know it it, it's got my attention i'm ready for the second half to see how this all resolves because there's a lot going on
0: Yeah, and I mean, probably more than anything else, like I mentioned uh, right off the bat, is that I just don't know why so many people dislike this movie. It's got funny lines. Uh, I think that, I mean, aside from those, like, security outfits, which are, like, the robot suits, um, aside from that, I think that the uh, the costuming and the sets and ships look amazing. It's, it's
1: funny. I, I actually just recently saw a tweet where someone talked about those security outfits and how good they were. Oh, how, okay. Because how, there's a lot of, like, little details in there that someone really liked. So, <laughs> you, you you know there's at least one person in the world who would disagree with you there. I thought they looked a little goofy.
0: Yeah, I think that the majority of people probably are in the same camp as us, but hey, you know what? That's what makes the world go round. (laughs) You know, everybody likes what they like. Uh, And I'm liking this movie. Honestly, Um, I'm very intrigued for the second half. They've done a great job setting up Kirk and David and the main villain. Uh, you know, I mean, at this point, I'm pretty sure that Spock is coming back, but I'm intrigued definitely on how they're going to, to make it happen, how they're going to do it. So, I mean, I can't wait to watch the second half of this, and I hope that everybody else is, uh, you know, looking forward to it as well. And, of course, we are going to look at the second half in two weeks'
1: time. Absolutely. we uh, We won't leave you hanging halfway through. That would be cruel.
0: This movie, as much as we're kind of, like, uh, you know, selling it up so much, it hasn't had a whole lot of action. And so, I mean, I think it's safe to say that the second half is really going to jump off and uh, we're going to get, uh, you know, some kind of more uh, high flying, uh, firing on all cylinders kind of uh, action here in the second half, which, you know, <laughs> is, uh, is going to be exciting. So uh, until then, uh, go back and listen to some back catalog RTR. And uh, we will see you in two weeks' time for the second half of Star Trek Three. So, bye-bye, everybody.
1: So long, folks.
0: This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs.
1: Loading Sweet Preview Program
0: 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. Yeah, so then he replays the last entry on the computer, and it's Janeway saying that they need to abandon ship. Uh. I have issue with this. Okay. Because it's, it's a captain's log, whatever. Mm-hmm. When is she ever like standing in front of a camera giving a captain's log? This is Captain Janeway for BBC News. <laughs> I mean, she's clearly on the middle of the bridge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's recording her at this point? Hey, get the emergency camera rig. (laughs) (laughs) Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Sci-Fi Feminist, a feminism and pop culture
1: podcast. So... Um, she has makeup on, but it's bright red with black, like, eyeshadow and, like, long talon nails. And I'm so happy to see Corella Devil did have her talons, because even in the 101 Dalmatians film, something that's very prominent, oh, I think it's 102 Dalmatians, when she ch- turns back to an insane person, like, her shoulder pads come out of nowhere and her nails grow. And I'm just like, that's that's the female grotesque. Like, you take this normal woman who is feminine, and then you're like, doublets, <laughs> and then add talons. <laughs>